we are not comfortable in this country with the concept of acceptable miss rate, and we need to be. Anybody who has been in emergency medicine for the past 10 years senses the coming of the total collapse of the system. This is not an uncommon event. It's going to happen every single day. So we ought to have some rules for it. What's the first thing you do? Give both Mrs. Smith and her husband, who's there, a shot of Verset. <laughs> so they don't remember what happened. This is bogus. This is totally bogus. Get him out of there. Let's take the gloves off here and talk about some real issues. It's another case of tag. You're it. That's just plain stupidity. Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's that time of the month again. It's the February edition of Risk Management Monthly. Mel, would you be my valentine? <laughs> I always call him handsome, beautiful in many ways, Dr. Greg Henry, and of course the very, very sophisticated and elderly. Dr. Rick Bucata. In fact, who is the more elderly of you two? Mm-hmm. I think I'm the senior member. He of is the senior member. Has he got you by a couple of years? Yeah, he's got me by a couple of years. Well, what are we doing this month? We're doing Risk Management Monthly, and I'm going to start it off with a letter, in fact, and this letter is from Ted Kay. He's the chief oh, of emergency... Come on, take a crack at his name. Oh, give the guy a break, Ted, I want you to forgive me right now. Here it is. Hans T. Claude. With the umlaut. In the umlaut. <laughs> and he's chief of emergency services at the CV... PH Medical Center in Plattsburgh, New York. And you've been like it. I'm sorry, Ted. I'm sorry. Okay, here's a few words to start with. I thoroughly enjoy the new series. Thank you very much. Your topics are timely, and the voice you give is helpful in my everyday practice. Oh. Don't overdo it. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, keep reading. Uh, but he goes further. I would like to ask you to provide some thoughts and insights into the liability attached to physician extenders, both PAs and MPs, providing service in the emergency department. By this, I don't mean the folks who work under our supervision. Rather, I am concerned about the PAs slash NPs who are working for other docs. It seems that more and more of these specialists are hiring these folks to take on some of their work in their offices and in-house. Until now, these mid-level providers were simply coming to the ED in advance of the supervising physician, like scouts, I guess. But there is pressure to actually put these folks on the call schedule and have them provide the consultation. As you can imagine, I'm pretty uncomfortable with this. What is going on in the rest of the country with this? This doctor has a great ability to underplay his terms. <laughs> How can these risks be managed realistically? Thanks and keep up the good work. Well, first of all, physician extender always sounds like something I should be buying at an adult <laughs> bookstore. But the bottom line is really this. Nobody can be the doctor except the doctor. If you're getting the physician extender on the phone to get information about the patient, to set up follow-up care, to get the patient admitted, all of that's terrific. I've got no problem with that. If you're depending on them for medical knowledge, you may have another problem. The other thing is, I don't know how they can be on the call schedule for something like neurosurgery or orthopedics if they don't have operative privileges. If you need a neurosurgeon, if you need to go to the operating room, I'm not sure what they add to the evaluation at that moment in time. Now, they add I, delay. They add delay. I guess what I'm thinking is the last thing the emergency doctor wants to do is if he's got someone who's really in need of specialist care, 
right now, why do you need to go through a, another person to get that care? And you're being very careful as well. This is bogus. This is totally bogus. <laughs> get them out of there. These doctors need to show up. You can't be asking a PA or NP to give you a bona fide consult, which may end with that person. What are you thinking about? Now, in but, all fairness... Now, that was not a very charitable <laughs> It wasn't charitable. Thing, but in <laughs> all fairness, I deal with NPs and PAs every day who do a great job and you're trying they, to do recovery. No, what they do is they facilitate the care of that patient. And if that's what they're doing, if they're setting up the follow up, if they're going to see them the next day, all these sorts of things, this is all good stuff, Rick. I'm okay with it, but this is not what this doctor is saying. This doctor is saying they're going to put them on a call schedule. Well, if they're putting them on the operative call schedule, or even if it's a PA for a cardiologist or something like that, I don't know how they can give the opinion that you need to have. I just don't understand that. You know, I can imagine that there are certain subspecialties where this person could be functioning at a far higher level than you are. For example, our PAs at LA County, when it comes to now, lacerations all, and orthopedics. They're all functioning at a higher level <laughs> than Rick is. But go ahead. So I could envision no, there might no, be... No. It's not the same thing. This is the intellectual thing they're calling about. And they're not asking him to sew up a laceration uh, or put on a cast or something like that. This maybe they To give you advice about what needs to be done for this patient. I was trying to find a way to dig you out, but basically we all know it's bogus. So. It's bogus, man. <laughs> So, Ted, it's bogus, and good luck with that. We have three votes on the bogus? <laughs> well, what we have oh, is... Oh, we have two, one, two votes <laughs> no, in the no, no, equivocator. No. We, we have three on the bogus, but also, Ted, we will send you my name and number when you need defense in court. <laughs> Let me know. All right. What else we got going on here? We, we have several issues going on today. The first one is we're going to talk a little bit about change of shift. Now, we've talked a little bit about you, this in the past. The next five years, you may do one ascending thoracic aorta that's dissecting. But every day, every time you come in, you're going to do a change of shift. There are two dangerous times in emergency departments. In academic emergency departments, it's July 1st. In everybody else's emergency department, it's every time you change shift. And the reason is, unless you've actually examined a patient and taken the history, you don't know that patient that well. And now you're going to hand over. You're going to pass things along. And I've seen multiple lawsuits based upon this pass along. And it has the worst thing possible for the defense community. And that is two doctors who now hate each other. Something happened in that passing and one wants to blame the other. Let me give you a case. A patient is into the emergency department, has been out with the family, and he passes out. As part of that evaluation, he gets a hemoglobin drawn, he gets a set of electrolytes, they do this, that, and another thing. He seems to be doing pretty well. As the two doctors switch shifts, one says to the other, just check the hemoglobin. If it's okay, he can go home. Now, automatically, there's a problem here. Just because you've checked the hemoglobin does not mean you understand why somebody passed out. I mean, to say, we're going to check the hemoglobin, that's all you need to do. You know what? That's probably not adequate care. Although, in many situations, the assumption is that everything else has been done. The aftercare instructions have been complete. We're just waiting for this one number, and I will take the responsibility for making the diagnosis if you just would please look at the hemoglobin. Yeah, and I would like to say that there's almost no situation that I know of where just looking at the hemoglobin 
makes a diagnosis in most cases unless you're expecting some bizarre anemia or something no, like that. No, I'm suggesting the first doctor did the entire workup, is confident in this diagnosis to the extent it can be, but there's this one little piece of it which is pending. Then you know what I think he ought to do? I think you ought to stay and wait till the hemoglobin comes back and discharge his own patient. Because I honestly believe that we should be staying over a little bit to clean up this small stuff. Now, I understand that there are going to be certain kinds of patients we cannot avoid passing along. The first one is altered mental status in alcoholics, for example, that were drying out in the department. They've had their first CT. They look good. They're getting better but they're not ready to go yet, that's the kind of patient that you're not going to be spending another three or four hours babysitting until their alcohol level is normal. Another one, the classic one these days, and I'm sure this is 25 or 30 or 40 percent of what gets passed on, are chest pain rule-out patients in emergency departments. It's the rule now in emergency departments that when you show up, there's going to be two or three people there who are going through their EKGs, their enzymes, If those are normal, they've been set up in the next so many hours or days to have a stress test, and you just have to decide whether that last troponin and EKG are normal. That's the kind of stuff that gets passed along all the time, but that's a case where we've got a package which is put together, as Rick points out, the discharge instructions are written, everything's been set up, you know exactly what you're looking at, and you still have to go in, heaven forbid, And actually ask the patient, how are you doing? Are you still feeling okay? Is the chest pain come back? Some of these things we understand. The short-term stuff, waiting for a hemoglobin, a blood sugar, a this or that, that's the kind of stuff we probably ought to clean up on our own and should not pass on. By the way, we haven't finished the case yet. There's a case here? There's a case here. And before I was rudely interrupted, and of course, what happened was one doctor goes home, the other one sees the hemoglobin, and it looks perfectly adequate at 12 grams. What that doesn't realize, as we pointed out last month in the trauma series, is when you're bleeding rapidly, it doesn't make much difference. And he goes home and comes back with a hemoglobin of about four. He's bleeding profusely through his GI tract and goes on to die. Now the family, of course, is miserably upset. One doctor blames the other. Well, I thought if anything was going to be done here, you'd have rechecked him, you'd have done this, you might have checked his rectal. Oh, wait a minute. You told me to check the hemoglobin. That's all I'm going to do. So now you got guys who haven't spoken to each other in two years working at the same department because of this kind of case. I think change of shift, it happens so frequently that we don't think about it. But I like the idea, the concept of when you leave, you dictate or you put down in the chart, patient turned over at such and such a time to Dr. So-and-so. If you're actually physically in the department, you take them around and introduce them so that the patient knows who their doctor is going to be now and what the goal is going to be. Because the last thing you want is a debate at some point in time as who'd laid out the program for this patient. It's another case of tag, you're it. Well, there is this thing called RVU-based compensation, which is uh, going to be a driver for physicians to not leave and finish up their patients because the person who makes the diagnosis and signs the patient out gets the RVU credit. Some places are on total payment based on their RVUs, and so you're not going to let that patient be passed on just for waiting for a hemoglobin if that's how your group is working. So I think in that case, RVU-based compensation, well, there's a lot of reasons RVU-based compensation is an interesting thing to consider, but this is another one of the good parts about it. Well, the other thing is, at the end of your shift, 
I understand why if you get off at 11 and it's five minutes to 11 and a complex medical case has come in, what you may want to do is go in, get the blood work going, but then be honest enough to tell your partner who's coming on, look, I've helped you out a little bit here, but I really haven't worked up the case yet. This is in the process. They've shot this, this, and this. They've ordered the following bloods. This is what you need to do at this moment in time. That would be a reasonable way to pass on a case. What you don't want is somebody who half thinks it's happened, that it's, oh, he's worked him up, he's asked the questions, he's felt the belly, he's checked the spleen. Those are the things that bother me, is when we're caught in the middle there. And I'll tell you, every time I work, I'm always more concerned about those cases which I have not done the history and physical on initially because I never know those patients as well. Well, there's an analogy here in terms of, and those four people are all admitted and waiting for beds. Now, you've never been involved with them. They're waiting for beds. They're sick. You have no idea particularly how sick they are, what's going on. It's a similar situation, except it's not a pass on in terms of maybe going home, but it is people in the department who you really don't know very much about and are going to wind up assuming some responsibility for potentially. There's no question it is a miserable situation to have to get involved in the defense of these cases because each doctor kind of retreats into his own defensive mode Mm -hmm. about what he or she should not have done. It's just like being involved in cases with the attending on the phone where they say, well, if he'd only told me, I'd have done the following. It's all of that hindsight sort of thing when really... This is not an uncommon event. It's going to happen every single day. So we ought to have some rules for it. Actually, I think the Joint Commission is into this pass-on issue kind of thing and wants to know the process by which you do this because it is perceived as an opportunity for patient errors to occur. No, absolutely. Whenever you have two docs running one case, who's in charge? When is the bright line in the sand when that responsibility changed. And I think without a bright line in the sand, that's where you get into trouble is when it all sort of blends and you don't know what you're in charge of. That's the real question. So the summary is try not to do it. Stay if you can. And if you do have to hand off, do it well, do it thoroughly because you're going to get named. You're going to be a part of it. It's going to be a part of it. Remember? No matter what you say. What we established several tapes back was there is no subtraction rule in law. There's only an addition rule, and you get added to the defense of the case. And the smart plaintiff's attorney would want to have several doctors just so they could piss on each other, which is what doctors do best. And he knows that he doesn't have to try the case. You'll try the case. All he has to do is sit back and collect the money. I mean, that's a nice position to be in. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> went to the wrong field. You went to the wrong field. <laughs> Let's take another thing which comes up all the time, and that's the filing of incident reports. Incident reports are an integral part of the quality assurance system of hospitals. This is where we look at the details of something that went wrong. The biggest mistake made by doctors is thinking the incident report is a part of the chart. It is not. An incident report is, in most states, protected from both discovery and admissibility under the state law. What it does, let's take a case. You get called over to x-ray. Mrs. Smith, who you sent over for her x-ray of her hip, has been dropped off the table and is now on the floor. What's the first thing you do? Give both Mrs. Smith 
and her husband, who's there, shot a verset. <laughs> so they don't remember what happened. But now you check her. The chart ought to reflect patient found on floor. Here's what the physical exam shows. Here's what the laboratory testing shows. We shot another x-ray. This is what it shows. This is my conclusion, yada, yada. What the incident report should say, and it should not be filed in the chart, is looking at the system question. This is the fifth time in a year that Jimmy Jones, the second shift x-ray tech, has had a patient fall on the floor. Now, he either needs to call people to do this or do that. That needs to be going back to the Quality Assurance Department to know what we're going to do to make this system so it doesn't happen again. What you can't do is put those things in the patient's chart. What's in the patient's chart ought to deal with the patient. What's in the incident report ought to deal with the system question of the incident, not the patient. Because if you start mixing those two then you're going to lose the protection of the immunity. Let me give you the case. An elderly woman was put on the medicine floor, and because she had a little bit of confusion, she was put in a posy vest. The nurse comes in to recheck her in an hour, and she's hanging off the end of the bed, strangled by her own posy. And so now she writes up in the incident report, I checked the patient, I'd put the vest on correctly, I'd put the side rails up, I'd done this and this and this. She didn't write it in the chart. She wrote it in the incident report. So now when it's filed, and now the lawsuit comes, they go to defend this. All the information they need about that patient is not in the chart. It's in the incident report. And what the hospital realizes is they can't use that for their own defense. Why? Because the sword cuts both ways. If the plaintiff can't use the incident report to go after you, you can't use the incident report in your own defense. Because then what you've done is you've abandoned what is the defensibility and the protection of that incident report. So if we want to protect the integrity of the incident reporting system, we have to handle it correctly. I actually had a case where the hospital, when somebody wrote for the patient's chart, also put a copy of the incident report on this case in the photocopied materials and sent it to the plaintiff's counsel. They might as well have sent him a blank check and said, just fill it in. That's just plain stupidity. But you can understand that the doctors and nurses, everyone else on the team, if they're going to be candid about looking at incident reports, need to be able to carry on serious discussion. And it cannot relate to that specific patient because that's patient information. Patient has a right to any information about them, any of it that's kept in the hospital. They have an absolute right to that. This is about system problems, and that's how they should be separated out. So they're protected by federal law or state law or both? State by state. State by state. So in you fact, need to, again, know your state law. You need to know the state law. In fact, the state of Nevada does not protect incident reports from discoverability. Now, they are limited protection from admissibility at the time of trial. But they're certainly open to discoverability. What does that mean? That means almost nobody writes up incident reports. And it's had a major effect on their ability to do quality assurance care. And we should just recognize that, that when physicians and other healthcare people look at it as a threat, then they're not going to handle it in a candid manner. Rick, do you know California law on this? Mm-mm. 
Uh, neither do I. I'm sure, everybody oh, from well, every other state. Actually, uh, state. I don't know it, but I, based on how our hospital operates, uh, the path of the paper for the incident reports versus the path of the paper for the chart. They are not a part of the chart. <laughs> it's headed down a different yeah, path. Yeah, it's going down a different path. Different path. Exactly. Well, my guess is if your hospital is doing a lot of incident reports, then they're probably not admissible because if they were admissible, I'm sure within a very short period of time, they would start to disappear. Why would you write that stuff down if you could get in trouble for it? Just well, stop doing it. You'd be amazed at the number of things which have actually changed. I remember being young in medicine, and we used to have death and complications rounds at the university where we would actually get together on the sixth floor conference room and of course they called it death and donuts because uh, <laughs> they showed bad cases and they served these great aorta bust donuts why in the vascular surgery department you would serve probably the most dangerous food in the world who knows but they basically got away from doing that only because they had no control over who was sitting in that room listening to the cases that were being discussed. And as you might imagine, a room full of surgeons who are criticizing the care given by residents at various areas, it became brutal and somewhat less than objective. And it's the kind of conversation which should be held with medical professionals only because it would not be well understood outside that arena. Actually, it's the only place for that kind of conversation is in the Coliseum in Rome about 4,000 years ago. <laughs> you have M&Ms? Yeah, we have M&Ms, and it's a much kinder, gentler M&M than it was years ago, yes. which was about filleting the meat off the resident. To... Well, there's a very famous hospital in Detroit which whose name will remain uh, out of this discussion because they don't like me to talk about it, but they found out that one of the women who was arranging cases for death and donuts and M&M rounds and stuff like that was passing on the names of patients to a plaintiff's attorney. There you go. And she American was, way. <laughs> she was doubling her income oh, by just passing out names. Now, the technique used was they would get a name. The attorney would then have somebody call the next day from his office and say, Mrs. Smith, I can't give you my name, but I'm one of the nurses on the floor where your husband was, I just want to tell you how badly we feel about the way we screwed up and what happened. Hang up the phone. Now, the next day, a circular comes. Hurt at work, anything that may need an attorney, call so-and-so. And so, all of a sudden, he's got all the business dealing with this hospital. It took him probably a couple of years to figure out what was happening here. That is absolutely evil, and yet... I still see that uh, there's a positive side. The guy was definitely using his cortex in his evil ways. Never, ever <laughs> underestimate the ability of Americans to make money in some way, shape, or form. You should never say anything bad about this entrepreneurial spirit. That's all I can tell you. This is a little rattle and aside, but email. So we have these incident reports. Let's say something happens and I email you, Greg, and say, that patient I handed over to you, I accidentally crashed their gurney into the wall and uh, broke their head open. And I send that to you in an email. Yes. If I put one of those sort of generic email, this is protected under something or other, does that protect it truly mm. from the lawyers or be is it all bogus? Be very careful. Remember what Bill Gates found out that you can't get rid of email. It's like a house in Detroit. You can't get rid of it. <laughs> and so as far as you're concerned, there's nothing good that happens to an email. After all, you've sent something out now into this vast cyber world. If you think for one second that that isn't going to come back to haunt you, be very careful about that. 
All of the materials we have with regard to quality assurance are almost always stamped with the Michigan laws with regard to them. They are protected. They only go certain places. Just be careful. Whenever we produce things that go on email, they're gone and they will come back forever. I've just learned that if I really want to convey something which I think is difficult, I've got a phone and I've also got this other process this other route to go through. By the way, whenever you are tempted to criticize another hospital, the way to do it is through their quality assurance committee. If, for example, you got a transfer of a case that you thought was inappropriate or poorly managed or something like that, write to quality assurance and then have them do a quality assurance review of the situation. Again, you don't want this to be a pissing contest, which is open to the public. What you want is to get the problem solved, and the way to do that is through proper channels that are protected from both discovery and admissibility. Got it. No more inappropriate emails. With a thing that says it's protected. I have seen emails where the disclaimer is 20 times larger than the message that is being oh, sent to you. They get longer all the time, all so the that's time. why I ask this, because I guess people think that if it's really long and four pages, it's got to be very protective. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, once you use that patient's name and data about that patient, there becomes a serious issue as to whether this is information that that patient has a right to. That's the problem. You want to do a paper? Sure. This is a one-year-old paper from the Annals of Emergency Medicine. It is so on target. Happy birthday. <laughs> it is so on target to what we're talking about that we are compelled to do this paper. Although there are some things that we can learn from it and other things I'm not so sure. It's entitled, Missed and Delayed Diagnoses in the Emergency Department, a study of closed malpractice claims from four liability insurers. And historically, this is kind of interesting because this paper is from the Division of General Medicine and Department of Emergency Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Harvard School of Public Health. That's oh, where the Harvard. Harvard. We're yes. not worthy. We had no And one of the doctors, the last one here of the eight who claimed ownership of this paper is from the University of Texas. The reason I bring up these Boston doctors is because there has been a tradition of Harvard-related doctors looking at malpractice claims that have been closed to assess the merits of the claims and to look at errors and to see whether damages resulted. They've looked at these things and published them. The first ones are probably in the 90s someplace. Yeah, for a long time. Yes. I remember because one of their classic ones was, was in the New England Journal, which saying the only thing that predicted whether you lost cash was young person bad outcome, right. which yeah. was very distressing. Right. Uh, the first study that they did was in New York State. Um, they, of course, they didn't look in Boston or Massachusetts, of course. They looked in New York State. And then the second paper they did was in Colorado. So I think that this is kind of like very much on target. What we'll gain out of it is interesting. Maybe something, maybe not. Most of these cases were closed after 1980. They basically noted that a third of the cases had an adverse outcome, but no error. And this was one of the recurring themes of the other two large studies that were done by the Boston folks in terms of some of these cases should have never, ever, never gone because although there was an out adverse outcome, there was no evidence that the doctor had anything to do with it. Poo-poo happens. And sometimes we're guilty of something called malocurrence. We're present when something bad happens. And that's the nature of what we do for a living. Two-thirds of these claims had a diagnostic-related error that was connected to the adverse outcome. So two-thirds of the 122 that they looked at, that turned out to be 79 cases. And they analyzed these cases in some depth. The mean age of these people was 41. 
which is kind of surprising to me. I would have thought they would have been older. And in fact, 13% of them were children. The most frequent causes of cases, everybody's always interested in that, 19% of the cases were fractures. Again, frequent, but no big dollars kind of thing. Second was infection. Fasciitis or birth diagnosis and those kinds of things. Third was MIs. 10% of the cases were MIs. And fourth was cancer. Now, that was 9%. He said, well, how does that come up? Despite the fact that all of these claims began in the emergency department, emergency physicians were only involved in about 55% of them. Family doctors, internists, and surgeons were involved in the rest. How long did it take for them to determine that an error was made? In a third of the cases, the error was determined within 24 hours. Business about making it clear that you can come back at any time. Because they had some errors that were discovered over a long period of time, the median interval was two and a half days. Again, something which is, I think, pretty short. 56% involved trainees. Obviously, the notion here is lack of adequate supervision. In three quarters of these cases, the trainee was the highest contributor to the error. They were responsible. There wasn't anybody else. The leading causes of errors were failure to order tests. They said that was about 60% of the cases. X-rays. One in five, CTs, one in six of those, cardiac markers was in there, ultrasounds, and other blood tests. The second most common cause of error, according to these people, was an inadequate history and physical. That represented about 40% of the cases where error caused some adverse outcome. Now, we're going to talk about an editorial that says a lot of this stuff, man, you just can't say that as blatantly as these people are. Incorrect interpretation of tests was a factor in about a third of the cases. These are the D-dimer is negative, or I'm going to send them home, or the first set of the troponin is negative, that kind of screwed up thinking. And then lastly, about a third of the cases involved failure to request a consult. There's a couple of charts in here, Greg, and I'd be interested in your thoughts about some of this stuff. Factors contributing to diagnostic errors. When they listed the communication factors, handoffs. 24% of the cases involved handoffs, just exactly what you were talking about before. Isn't that a small world? Well, let's think about this for a minute. One in four. These are mostly academic centers. They have to be, or they wouldn't have had 75% of the major problems with residents. And so by virtue of that type of situation, the handoff is going to be frequent. There's going to be multiple people involved. And this is one of those things that it is logarithmic. As you have more people involved, the risk of passing on bad information or not knowing who's in charge increases. To me, I have no problem believing that that's actually part of the deal. One of the other things that they mentioned that reaffirms what you said earlier is that establishment of clear lines of responsibility that was involved in 6% of cases, but it was the second biggest cause in terms of the communication factor, system factors. 30% involved supervision issues, as you can envision. A quarter of them involved, and I think this is really going to be an increasing way that people are blamed for bad outcomes. A quarter of them involved workload issues. Place is too busy. You've got too much going on. You're inadequately staffed. You don't have adequate backup to take care of these cases. You're trying to see 12 patients at once, and you screw it up. And the fact of the matter is, is that you cannot be expected to see this many patients. I think we have to recognize that we're living through a transition phase. Rick, you and I remember the days when, as house officers, we did an awful lot of things. And if you actually even called your attending for advice, they kind of looked at you like you were weak. I mean, a real man would have known what to do in these situations. What are you doing on the phone talking to me? We're working through that phase now. 
The original paper on resident supervision was issued in 1969, and no one paid any attention to it. It wasn't till 1995, after a series of cases had taken place, that the feds got serious about supervision. This should be the rule. The standard of care for a resident is exactly that for a mature physician based on the proposition of supervision. No attending should ever blame a resident. You're a knave and a coward if you blame the resident. You're in charge of the situation. And this happens in the emergency department, and this is a serious problem. When, let's say, a third or fourth or fifth year resident in surgery comes down, they start giving orders. They think they're in charge. No, they're not. The emergency physician on duty at that time is in charge. The person he can turn that responsibility over to is the attending surgeon, but not the resident. If you have a problem with the resident, don't talk to the resident. Don't talk to the monkey. Talk to the organ grinder. Speak to that person's supervisor, because the resident does not have rank over you as the attending in emergency medicine. If you want to transfer care, you transfer to the attending. That's the person who has to take over the care. I don't know whether you should finish, because I want to go down a rat hole about this busy emergency department thing. Can I go there now, or will I wait? Go there now. All right, so here's what... A big concern that I have, not only where we live, but everywhere. Emergency departments get increasingly busy. There are closures all the time. There are clearly systems issues coming up where it is too busy. And so is this a case of, I've got 30 people to see. I'm working as hard as I can. I dropped the ball a few times. I've got to drop the ball. I've called my director and said, I'm out of control. And they're like, yeah, you'll be fine. And then I get sued. And so is what's happening here, that doctor saying after he gets sued, screw you, you're coming down with me and saying, I called, I looked for help, you didn't help. This is not my fault, it's the hospital's fault, it's the consultants who didn't come in, it's my director for not sending me in help. Is this where this is coming from? It's really interesting that you brought that up, because there is a rebuttal of sorts by uh, Robert Weirs and Christopher Nemeth. Robert Weirs is the doctor who wrote the article that we all were required to read in the LLSA series about errors. Right. It was probably 2004, 2005. Anyway, he's from the Department of Emergency Medicine, University of Florida, (laughs) and Clinical Safety Research Unit at the Imperial College in London. So he he must be going back and forth between Florida and London. Weirs is a big name. He's like a Lucian Leap and those sorts of people. He's one of the major names when it comes to errors. I don't don't always agree with what uh, Ware has to say, but I read his stuff. I mean, he has interesting insight. Well, Dr. Namath is from the Cognitive Technologies Laboratory in the University of Chicago, and they basically said what these fellows did in terms of trying to assess causes of adverse outcomes in patients is okay, but... You really can't do what they did. There are so many biases in this, looking at things after the fact. After you know what the diagnosis was, it's very easy to look at the chart and say, well, they missed this, 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 and this, when in fact you are biased because you already know the diagnosis and therefore you are excluding this elements of data and those elements of data and only focusing on those that basically give you the answer that you are looking for. They say that we work in complex, chaotic environments. What they did is just not necessarily fair. Let me address what you were talking about. 
Closed claim reviews typically find fault with the thinking or behavior of individual physicians, and they fail to order the right tests. They fail to do a complete physical examination and so on. The assessments conveniently skirt the identification of other causes that have higher stakes. For example, finding flaws in the design of equipment or processes, which lead to expensive and embarrassing shutdowns or retooling. Here you go, Mel. Or finding management failures that would threaten those in charge. So it's easier to say... It's this doctor's breach or fault rather than saying you should never have been asked to see that many patients in the first place. And we need to talk to the manager of this department. And by the way, hospital. the retrospectoscope is always perfect. If I'd had that patient, I would have done this, this, this and this. We need to design those systems to say, here's the basics that need to be done on the back pain patient or the headache patient. Now, are they going to be perfect? No. But this is the only country I can think of that never asked this question. What is the acceptable miss rate? Even if you're functioning at a high level, there's going to be an acceptable miss rate. And the British are perfectly comfortable with this. The Germans are comfortable with it. Even the Canadians are comfortable with it. But we are not comfortable in this country with the concept of acceptable miss rate. And we need to be to be able to move forward in coming up with basic processes. By the way, for the defense of the emergency physician, when you're overwhelmed like that, I have no problem making a comment on my chart, a system overwhelmed at this time or total system backup or whatever it is, because in five years when this case is tried, am I going to remember what that night was like? I want something on that chart to indicate the fact that I'm doing the best that I can. The function of emergency medicine is to deal immediately or as quickly as we can in an incomplete database with inadequate resources. That's what we do for a living. And to not understand that, the toughest part, I think, for a defense attorney is to recreate at the time of trial for the 12 people in the jury, whoever many there are in, in your region, what it's like at 2 in the morning to be overwhelmed with X, Y, and Z. If you're in a small department and you're one doctor and 10 people register in, somebody's going to be the 10th to be seen. And how do you know which one is the sick one? So does that help you with your defense? So that's important. So if you can say it was a dark and stormy night and there place was overwhelmed and I was doing the best I could, can you put that forth as a chart uh, saying, I did what a similarly trained emergency physician would have done under the same circumstances, and so therefore writing the circumstances of what's going on is uh, defensible, it is useful. Absolutely, and I think that putting down department overwhelmed, called surgeon at 12.02, then said surgeon answers at 3.15, all that sort of stuff, is perfectly reasonable to have on the chart because we have to somehow recreate what went on for you at that moment in time. After all, the only card you're dealt, the only case that's being tried, is not the healthcare system, but it's that specific case at that specific moment. What did you do at that moment in time? What are the implications? Let's say I'm working for Rick. He's a director of an emergency department. It's really busy. Really busy. And I call Rick and I say, Rick, I'm getting killed here. Send some help. And he goes, you know what? We don't have help right now. Do the best you can. I get sued. I then turn on Rick like I would because I'm a bastard. Right. And I turn on him viciously and say, I called. It's in my chart. I wrote it here in the chart. Called the director and he wouldn't send help. The cavalry never came. It's not my fault. It's his fault. What would the lawyer do? Would they go after Rick? Well, they certainly could try that. In fact, Rick is the owner of the group. When people file suit, they almost always file against the doctor, the group, 
it may be local. If the group is a national type of group, they'll file against the national organization, and they'll file against the hospital. And if the hospital is part of a larger entity, let's say they're Catholic Healthcare West or something like that, they will not only file against the Pacific Hospital, but against the controlling agency, which could be Catholic Hospital West, so that they include as many pots of insurance and as many people as they possibly can to provide the money in these cases. Now, this paper by Dr. Weirs and Namath is actually really, really worth reading, frankly, more so than the paper that they are commenting on, because they make a really relatively eloquent case for the fact that things that we assume to be correct and reasonable to do, like root cause analysis, which is kind of the buzzword of this stuff, all of the ways the root cause analysis really will not necessarily get you to the answer that you want, because all of these processes tend to be looking at this doctor made an error, what was the system that made this error, but the fact of the matter is is that they say this is much more complex than that, and that it's so easy for a Monday morning quarterback to ascribe error when they know the outcome. I think that these two or three pages that they did are something that if you get attacked in terms of your behavior, I think that you ought to get these a couple of pages because they make it clear that the usual processes that we look at in terms of reviewing cases are very, very flawed. Yeah, this is one of my pet peeves and I need to let it go, but to have hospital administration and people from the risk management group come down and grill our people because at 9 a.m. when they've got their full cup of coffee, they're saying that we should have done things differently at 2 a.m. when there were four gunshot wounds and three diabetics with DKA and a couple of MIs and how inadequate we treated somebody. You want to just reach over and strangle somebody. It's like, where were you when I needed the help? Of course, these people tend to function Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, and they tend to go to meetings a lot. You know, if you ever want to know who actually works in a hospital, just find somebody who used to be a nurse. They now wear a clean white coat. They have a clipboard, heels, and carry a briefcase. They don't work anymore. People who work are actually in the department doing work. And I think we get meetinged to death, and the Monday morning quarterback situation is a bad one. And you have to look at each individual incident based on the surroundings. That's why the smart doc, when the place is turned to crap, when there are eight people who registered in, the worst night of my life when I was very young was a busload of kids hit by a cement truck. So I had 13 kids all brought to me, seven of whom are going to go to the operating room in the next two hours, and I'm the only doc. Now, if you think every one of those kids got a rectal or everyone got their fifth cranial nerve checked, you're wrong. And since so say, well, doctor, shouldn't that have all been done? In the best of all possible worlds, but not at that moment in time because that's not what I could do at that moment in time. So the response during these episodes, and they're increasingly frequent. This is not a new thing. This is going to happen more and more. It's out of control, so what I should do is call the director, call for help, send the cavalry. Note that down somewhere, hang up the phone, and write on my chart, it's out of control. I'm doing the best I can. Greg, the point that you made about your case is that that was an atypical, unusual case. When, in fact, an emergency department is routinely overrun and out of control, that's a totally different matter. And I think that when people are waiting four, five, six, seven hours to be seen, you have an ER that's out of control. You can say, well... It's a funding issue. L.A. County is not going to give us the money or something like that. I don't know that lawyers really care about L.A. County's funding. All they know is that their person that they represent was hurt because there was a delay of care. Errors were made. And I don't know that what kind of mitigators it is to say, well, tell you the truth, we're really busy. When is it going to happen? 
because it's going to happen. Well, that's why the the Joint Commission needs to kind of step up to the plate on this, because these problems, I truly, truly believe, and this obviously is an editorial view of this, these problems can be fixed when the CEO's bonus is linked to the performance of the emergency department, when they are financially incentivized to get the staffing there that they need, to get the backup there that they need, then I think things will happen. I think that people just say, well, that's the way it's always been. Yeah, it's getting worse. You know, we hate lawyers and we make fun of them and we do all this stuff. The only way that's going to change is the sentinel event where some doc gets sued for a lot of money for missing something, who then turns around and sues whoever the healthcare organization is or the CEO and wins, and then things will instantly change. Sadly, we have to use the evil force against itself. Well, actually, the huge lens of the legal system is very interesting because it often focuses on things which we should have been focusing on ourselves. There are certainly lawyers who are financially driven, but the system itself has its own intrinsic problems. Our worst enemy is us and an understanding of how we've worked for all these years. All those people upstairs who are under absolutely no obligation to move the patients. There's nobody upstairs who wants to get people out quickly. Why? Because what would we do? Fill the bed. There'd be more work for the same amount of money. I mean, I think all the incentives are in the side of lethargy, of not moving quickly. And until that changes, I think it's going to be very difficult to change the culture that goes along with it. And unfortunately, new people hire in to hospitals. And who are they trained by? Old people. Those people who've worked there before who have no incentive to move more patients through. And this is unfortunately a common mindset. By the way, you can tell when you step on the floor as a doc, certain of us are anal compulsives. I mean, I pace I want those people in a room, and I want them in now, and I will go in when the nurse is in there, and I'll observe and listen and start my history and do parts of things, and clearly there are some who like that when I'm on, and there's some who say, hey, you need to take a chill pill. You need to sit for a while, have another coffee, and come in later. Whenever I hear that chill pill thing, it's basically, no thank you. I'm like you. I want to see those people as quickly as I can because God knows what's going to be coming in the next hour, and I don't want to get behind. I don't want to get behind. Exactly right. You got some more stuff on your list there? Yes, I do. In fact, I think a couple of months ago, we were into lists, and we did some lists. We did one on trauma, and I think we did one on hot buttons, which change how we view a patient and those things that interfere with giving out reasonable patient care to every patient, how they come in with a tag. We did one on a list of trauma no-nos. Well, I have another list today. I like lists. Okay, lists are good, and I want to talk about basic lists of business things of a behavioral nature which emergency physicians to do to make the department run better you are when you are the doctor on and in most hospitals it's one or two docs that's it who are on staff most hospitals in the united states are running emergency departments which are about twenty-five thousand visits that would be an average and there'll be a doc and maybe a pa and it is my contention that without a doctor who understands the principles of business the place cannot run effectively. And by effectively, I mean make a place where everybody wants to come to work every day and understands what the goals are. Man, what are you smoking? 
Hey. <laughs> so what I want to do is I want to present a list of behavioral changes and things which you either believe these things or you don't. But when you're in charge, you get to set the tone and what's going to go on. And my first rule in this is that there are always three factors at work with any doctor-patient interaction. The first one is the patient's view and expectations of the visit. I think we're very poor at understanding what the patient's expectations are. Second thing is the doctor's view of the illness. There's a scientific view of what's going on. We studied science. And lastly is the negotiated interface between those two so that you come up with a compromise solution of treatment modality. And most of life is a series of negotiated compromises that make the place work. And until a doctor recognizes that, then he can't make the place work. In general, the rules of business don't change. Business goes where it's invited. It stays where it's appreciated. And we need to think about that. If people don't view this as a reasonable experience, they ain't coming back. And we think about the patients a fair amount. What we don't think about are the people we work with every day. Because your other role is not just as patient advocate, but it's as you're in charge of a staff, a diverse staff of people. You've got techs, you've got nurses, you've got administrative people, desk clerks. All of these people are, to a great extent, even if they're not paid by you, are influenced by you. And there's general rules of business, and you will watch this every single day you work. People who are working to build the business and people working to destroy the business. Let me give you an example. I think in general, here's a rule of business, which everybody understands outside of medicine. Good news in public, bad news in private. No physician should be reprimanding the nurses, the techs, or anybody else in front of the patients. It's a bad habit. More than that, it's a habit which tends to undermine their own confidence in themselves. By the way, it's not just in front of the patient. You shouldn't do it in front of their colleagues. If you need to talk to the nurse about a behavior, do it somewhere else. I walked into a room one time, and one of the younger nurses who'd just finished her training had given the Delantin almost the way I'd asked for it. She ran the gram of Delantin over about two minutes. Now, I could have handled that one of several different ways. I could have gone spastic and say, oh my God, it could kill somebody, that sort of thing. Never do that in front of the patient. In front of the patient, you always say there. I think there's very little chance that you're going to seize. (laughs) Then you ask to speak to the nurse outside about another issue, but not in front of the other nurses. Go into a room and say, you know, generally, you need to go back and check this. We usually run that over about 20 minutes or 30 minutes. Here's why, da-da-da-da. Because that person has to live with everyone else. They have to save face. And it's just a standard business modus operandi, which every business would understand except us. We grew up in an environment where humiliation of the provider in front of everyone on rounds was a way of doing business, was a way of life. And I think it's an inappropriate way of doing business, and we should not do it. Secondly, we need to thank people for their efforts. That is, when somebody's done a good job, and here's a general rule which I like to teach young people who are coming up in administration. Ten times as many compliments as criticisms. Pass out a lot of compliments during the shift. In fact, if you talk to the patient before someone comes in to start their IV and say, I'm sending in a really good person to do the IV, 
do they think they've had a better job done? Yes, they do. Or I'm sending in my best tech to do your splint, the master of the plaster. And you know what? They feel good about that. They feel they're getting a top-notch person to do it. And you walk in and you say, excellent job on the splint. Good job on getting the IV in that child. People don't just work for money. They work for a satisfaction. And if every day the only thing they hear are negatives, how can you ever have a relationship so that you can ever pass on any meaningful criticism? Well, I can also see it working from a medical malpractice point of view. If something went wrong with the IV and they were otherwise would be ticked off if the environment is bad and they want to sue you, you've turned it so that they sent in the best person and they still couldn't get it. And I had this IV that blew up and I had a little extravasation, but they sent the best person. So setting the mindset, because you told me before that most people sue because they're ticked off. And you're doing a little scheme here that reduces the ticked offness factor even before you begin. What you're doing is you're giving them a preemptive understanding, a positive note preemptively that you're going to do a good job. It's like saying to the nurse, I know you're going to try hard to get that IV in. Because what you know is if she can't get it in, then you've got to go in and do it. Worse than that, you may have to put in a central line or something because the truth is the nurses can usually get the IVs better than I can. If they've tried several times and somebody from anesthesia has tried and they can't get the IV in, Pretty much, I've got to do a central line. So I want them to succeed. What I want is success on their part. But whenever a patient says to me that the nurse or the tech or somebody was really good, I want to pass that along. By the way, that's what you pass on in public. It's perfectly fine for other people to hear, Mrs. Smith really liked your care. What you want everybody else to know is you value that and you want that as a part of the culture that you live in every single day. And I very much like at the end of the shift to thank everybody for the care they gave because they did work hard. I'm the top of that pyramid. I get paid a lot of money. And if you live on that, you ought to be grateful to those people who've made it possible for you to live that way and say something nice about it. It's pretty simple, really. You know, it's interesting that hospitals make it difficult to tangibly reward people who have gotten compliments by patients. Mm because of union rules, this, that, or the other thing kind of thing. Or sometimes they'll bring a pizza for the department. But individuals, it's hard to acknowledge them. So one of the things we did, and I don't know whether this is kosher or not, but we do it, is that we've offered each employee $25 every time they are acknowledged by a patient in writing because they get these surveys sent out, etc., etc. And I think that they need to be motivated to make patients' experiences in the department as positive as possible. And that'll happen if they choose to do it. If they choose not to do it, it won't happen. It's one of those active processes. And I think that certain people are certainly better at it than others. And some people, the wiring is better to work in emergency department than others. But we wanted to tangibly motivate them and show that the physicians are generally appreciative of their work on the behalf of the patients. And so we that's coming from us. It sends the message that we are really interested in what the patients think of their experience as well. We in medicine need to keep our business to ourself. We believe something which is fundamentally untrue. When we take their clothes away and lay them down, their ears don't work. Their ears work just fine. I always remember my mother, when I was in high school, senior in high school, was admitted to a very famous hospital in Detroit, made after a famous automaker. Mm -hmm. And at 8 o'clock in the morning, she was sent down for a series of x-rays. They'd mixed up the paperwork. She laid down there until 4 o'clock in the afternoon, nothing done. 
finally a scrub woman at four o'clock on that hallway in x-ray said, I don't think you should be here. Nobody upstairs on the floor. None of the nurses had called down. And of course, there was no radiologist. It was four in the afternoon. They're gone. So now I see her that evening. I go up to see my mother and I said, mother, that must have been terribly boring. And she said, it was fascinating. You know, good immigrant woman. I said, why? She says, you hear everything. Well, she knew every doctor sleeping with every nurse. She even knew the name of the patient. They dropped off the x-ray table that day. Why? Because when they got nothing better to do but sit and listen, you can't believe the crap that they pick up. Do this as an experiment. Lay yourself down in your own department. You know, just cover yourself up, lay on the cot, and listen to what you hear. Start a tape recorder going in a couple of locations. And hear the comments that are made, which no other business would allow to have made. So I was telling one time about I was sewing up a patient, and two of the nurses are talking behind me, perfectly innocent. One says to the other, uh, did they short you on your overtime last month? The other nurse said, well, of course they did. This hospital never does anything right. And all of a sudden, the guy I'm sewing on kind of looks up at me. And I said, no, they're talking about an accounting question. We're actually quite good at closing wounds. It's okay. But you know what? How does he know now that he gets infected from that wound a week later? Well, we know that that hospital never does anything right. I mean, I think as a business, you don't make comments about the business that are negative at that moment of time. Another rule is you never make comments about anybody else's health care. See, I don't care what Dr. Smith did on the outside. It's not up to me to assassinate his relationship with his patient by a loose comment. There are still people giving out drugs, which I do not agree with. There's no question I don't give out aminophilin. Do I occasionally see a patient who's on it? Yes. Do I think that it's probably not useful? Absolutely. But you know what? It's not up to me at that moment in time, unless they're aminophilin toxic, to be making disparaging comments about anybody else's care. These are just standard rules of business that smart business people would never ignore. But watch in your own department, your own fellow docs, your own nurses. There are those people who understand this intrinsically, and those who it seems like will never get it. No, that's true. But I think also we are particularly prone to that because we are often overwhelmed with patients, hassled by the fact that the floors won't accept patients when you know that there probably is a bed up there, but they don't have to do it because they're in report or lunch or something like that. So I think that the ER is a particularly prone place to do that. There is virtually no privacy in these ERs that have these curtains between them. You know, everybody gets to hear everything. Mm -hmm. And despite my best efforts, actually, to do things I think people ought not do, there are still people eating popcorn at the desk. It basically doesn't send the message that we really want to send, that kind of thing, because you can smell it all over the department as soon as somebody's made popcorn, kind of thing. It's really good for the nausea and vomiting patients. It's, really it's like one of those it. things where I believe each of us needs to have an organ removed every five years and be put in the gown that doesn't cover your tush and be given inadequate pain medication and have people talking about you as the gallbladder in 103, kind of thing. What we always do is we always emphasize the mistakes that we make. We never analyze are successes. You know you've got a success in emergency medicine when on the way out the door the patient says, do you have a practice? As soon as that happens, you've hit a home run. All of a sudden, they would be willing to take money out of their pocket, find where you are, and come to see you. 
And you ought to retrace what you did during that visit and try and emulate that in some way, because that's the visit that's a success story. What happened in that event that made it so damn good? And you and I really don't want to spend our time fighting with patients. The difference between a good shift and a bad shift is not the disease entities we see. It's the personalities we deal with and the tension which is put upon us, most of which is personalities. It's not a fact thing. It's an attitude thing. See, it's not a comment from the surgeon, a scientific comment. I think the artery comes off of this branch of this or that. It's, what do you call me for? Don't bother me. I'm busy. Uh, It's that sort of thing which leads to a problem. And I see it as a larger general problem in the country, and that is I'm a great believer in manners and proper behavior. I think we ought to be polite to each other. It sends the wrong message when we're not exceedingly polite to the patients and to ourselves. And by the way, you never let someone else's behavior control your behavior. Why would you let the rude surgery resident control how you respond to him? You're still a polite person. You do not let other people's behavior control your behavior. And if every day you leave, your nerves are frazzled, is that how you want to live your life? Well, I guess I always bring it up because this is the Risk Management Monthly tape. I'd love to work in that place, but I'm sure it would have these other effects, like for the series, that it would be beautiful. Beautiful. All right, time to change tracks. It's time for a phone interview. Dr. Bucato is going to set us up here. Well, we have Ron Helster on the line today. Ron, I thanks very much for taking time to be with us. I honestly don't think that there's a person in emergency medicine who could help us out better on the question that we're going to be addressing than you. For the three people in emergency medicine who don't know of you, I think it's important to acknowledge that you were the winner of the Mills Award in 1992, which is the college's Outstanding Contribution in Emergency Medicine Award, which is an extraordinary award. And I think actually, Greg, didn't you get that award too? No, I got the Wegenstein Award, but those of us who are Wegenstein Award winners do recognize the Mills people as well, so it's okay. (laughs) The other thing I think is really unique about Ron is that Ron's based in Dallas and for many years was involved in a large multi-contract group down there and then was involved with a company called PSR, where he's the Senior Executive Vice President, which helps independent groups with management services so that they can survive and actually go up against multi-contract groups. So, Ron, you've been on both sides of the aisle here. Both the dark side and the white side. Yeah, I guess depending on which side you're on, yes. So you're extraordinarily knowledgeable, and I also wanted to thank you for your ongoing contributions. ASAP has a director's academy, and those people who go through that process are allowed onto a listserv where these directors basically ask questions of each other, trying to help them out with problems. And Ron is always on there with really sage advice about helping these younger doctors get their departments up in order. And so, Ron, I do think that we are in your debt for a lot of these reasons, but your contribution to the Director's Academy listserv is just terrific. Thank you, Rick. I'm flattered. Among this group, I feel a little bit like to use a Texas term, a piss ant in the bull pasture. But I'll do my best to keep up with the three of you. Ron, one of the things that comes up with some frequency is the fact that the emergency department that you're working in is just basically overwhelmed, or you're holding lots of patients, or your staffing is not very good, or you've got a bunch of 
per diems working in there, et cetera, et cetera, and it has the potential to compromise the quality of the work that you can do with any one patient to the point where you think it may be getting a little dangerous. And one of the things that has come up is doctors writing in the chart of the patient that we're holding five patients here and no nurses available, those kinds of things, which serve to try to show the reader of the chart and paint the picture of what's going on if there's any kind of issues of quality or errors related to the care of a patient. On the other side, the administration of the hospital certainly doesn't want you putting that in people's charts where you make them the bad guy kind of thing. That kind of frames the issue. Where do you stand on something like that? I think it's a fascinating subject, and I have sensed for some time a new era afoot in emergency medicine. Uh, we work with a lot of independent groups, and one of the things they come up against pretty regularly is renegotiating their hospital contracts. And for the last three to five years, there's been a growing trend among hospitals trying to put performance criteria in the emergency medicine group's contract. Usually these things deal with average length of stay, the percent of patients leaving without being seen, patient satisfaction scores, and that sort of thing. Being businessmen, of course, we typically try to respond by saying, well, we'll be happy to agree to those things. If you'll be willing to agree to things having to do with nurse staffing ratios, lab and x-ray turnaround times, boarding and on-call specialty support because you'd like not to be held contractually accountable for things that you can't control. Interestingly enough, hospitals have been somewhat reluctant to specify their accountabilities as opposed to ours. I think at the same time, anybody who has been in emergency medicine for the past 10 years senses the coming of the total collapse of the system. Certainly all the trend lines have been strongly negative for at least that period of time. And my sense is a quickening of the pace of deterioration in the last few years. I don't know how the media will define complete collapse, but I'm pretty sure that we are beginning to reach the end of the beginning of the complete collapse. And I would define that as a point or the point where we can no longer hold it together by working harder or our force of will or horse trading for the resources that we need. And between this point and complete collapse, I think we'll see a prolonged period of individual patient and provider jeopardy that you know, really no emergency physician with a normal self-preservation instinct can afford to ignore that said, from the business side, I look at risks and tend to divide them into two categories. One are the acceptable risks of doing business that need to be managed, and the other is the unacceptable risks that need to be avoided, if at all possible. And I think this issue falls very much into the former group. I think it's a risk of doing business that needs to be managed. I don't know that we can totally avoid it. And in many ways, I think the same distinction applies to this question as applies to the question of writing admission orders by the emergency physician. And that distinction is the difference between right and wrong and what works. Sometimes something can be very right and yet not work. For example, if you're dogmatic about not writing admission orders, unquestionably you are going to have patients who suffer by being kept in the department longer than they need to be who would be much better off with some comfort orders with appropriate disclaimers and time limitations, but moving on upstairs. 
and you're attending, admitting medical staff will uh, like you and say good things about you if you do that on a limited basis, but, you know, whenever it's clearly necessary as opposed to never. I think the same thing applies to this is that I don't think anybody could say that it isn't right for the emergency physician to protect himself or herself by charting the impact of deficient resources on his patient's care, but it doesn't work, just like not writing admission orders doesn't work. And in both cases, you eventually end up getting to choose between being right or being humane and unemployed. Therefore, I think the right approach to the question is to try to look for what works. And and thinking about that prior to the call, I would say what would work for me would be, first of all, to meet with administration and present your concerns in writing. I think that's an important piece to have before you take any other steps. I think you should also be clear about the reasons for your concerns and the fact that you're going to be the one accepting a disproportionate share of the risk as things deteriorate. Ron, let me jump in a second. Let's take the gloves off here and talk about some real issues. We can talk about the emergency department, which is chronically overloaded, chronically slow, chronically bad. But the truth is, every one of us works in a place where occasionally when we go into work, I went in the other day, every room is full, and there's 10 charts waiting to be brought back. At that moment in time, we are in system overload. And if you only note on the chart, I mean, having been to court lots of times, having been to the stand 300 times on these issues, if we're able to say that the system is overloaded or that we're in a disaster mode, then at least in four or five years when this thing goes to court, we can at least recreate a little bit of what's going on. All of us are going to be put in a situation where the usual and customary time frames do not apply. And that's simply because patients don't come in in a 2.3 patients per hour manner. There may be 20 people, and then there may be nobody for four hours. And I think it is fair for the emergency doc, and certainly for those of us who participate in evaluating and defending emergency doctors, to have that kind of thing available to us. Because what the standard of care is, is not what you should do, it's what you can do sometimes under the situation. I would completely agree, Greg. I think that's absolutely true. I would have no problem charting the department is in overload in terms of patients presenting. I think where I struggle is having that comment in the chart be inferential or suggest that that's a chronic condition. I think if it is a chronic condition, then you have a decision to make. Do you really want to continue to work in that environment or not? Or I think an alternative would be to create an offline incident report log where you have some way of dictating, for example, on a phone line that you've got 20 boarders and three nurses short and whatever all those things are at that time and date. The problem, Ron, is it can't be a part of the quality assurance program because that's protected from discovery and admissibility in most states. I want something. If I'm the doctor who's in trouble, I want something to let them know what's going on. I don't think that that means that it's a chronic situation. What it means is that moment in time, because we only try cases one incident at a time. And the real problem, I think, is being able to speak to a jury 
who are sitting there doing not much at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday, where you were on Saturday night with every room full and major cases going on, you've got to be able to recreate that atmosphere for proper defense. By the way, I'm really against the concept of us saying to other docs, well, if it's that dangerous, don't work there. To me, that's the Marie Antoinette, well, let them eat cake sort of comment. I mean, (laughs) fortunately, most people are living in an area and working in an area where they only have so much control of this. And, you know, if you're working in Saskatoon and your mother lives there and your brother lives there and your family lives there, you know what? You ain't moving to Miami. And so you got to kind of make do with what you got. I don't want to contradict you, but in Texas with tort reform, we've disproven that lots of people moving from Florida and Massachusetts to Texas because it's a better practice environment. Well, I think they're moving for a lot of reasons. One is the chili, I think. The chili could be the reason. But uh, <laughs> That's true. But there is no question that it is difficult to pick up and move sometime. And I think we I have agree. to have some set of practical answers here. One thing is we really need to divide this into two questions. One is what do you do for the individual particular case they're seeing that day? The second thing is what are you going to do overall to try and address the situation? And I think that those are really quite different things. I mean, what the macro is versus the micro. Well, and I guess what I would submit is either thing done incorrectly will threaten your contract and make matters worse rather than better. So I think there is a right way to approach them. Can I ask the gurus, what then, as the practicing ER doc, I'm there, it's busy, it's out of control, I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'm feeling the system is letting me down. Exactly how should I chart that in the medical record? What should I put to protect myself? My perspective would be that you try to keep that as specific to the individual patient's circumstance as well. For example, timing your orders, you might say 1,400 ortho recalled, right leg warm with no evidence of by expansion, distal neurovascular intact and unchanged so that you make it clear what the impact of the deficiency is on you right at that moment. Or nursing reminded that pain med order is 30 minutes overdue or will attempt to transfer if no ortho in 30 minutes more. I think those kind of chart entries would be difficult for me to say are not in order and clearly would tend to paint the picture somewhat indirectly that you're trying to paint. I think where the hospital administration gets upset is comments like, well, we've got 10 boarders again today and five nurses short, and we've got three agency nurses out of six, and those kind of things that tend to reflect on their performance. If you're waiting to take patients to the operating room and all operating rooms are full, it's perfectly fine to say surgery has been down here. When an operating room opens up, so-and-so will go. We had that situation the other day where we had two operating rooms after hours. Both operating teams were busy doing serious cases, and so we weren't able to move the appendix up within two hours or three hours for the procedure. That doesn't mean we weren't aware of it. That doesn't mean we didn't know what to do but it just happened to be that particular situation. And I think we need to be honest about these things. The one thing about honesty is W.C. Field says you can't beat an honest man. And I think that it's very hard for administration, if you've made an honest comment, to come back against it. 
Although I think one of the keys here is the skill with which you put that note in the chart. I think that Ron made a good point. You're talking very specifically about this patient, the fact that you've called three times, four times. That's a lot different than saying, we're down four nurses again kind of thing. And one of the issues is, is that some physicians in a group are going to have a different threshold than others in terms of covering their butt and writing these statements in the chart. And I think that when this is occurring, it's clear that you have to, at least as a group, make it clear to administration your concerns because when lawsuits occur, the hospital is going to get named as well. And if they get blindsided because they're not necessarily aware of the severity of the problem, then I think that you've been a little deficient in your relationship with them. They basically, I think, are trusting you to be the patient's advocate and reflect back what's going on in the department. But Rick, in the best of situations, every good department worth its salt is going to have overrun periods because it's the nature of the beast. It's not necessarily a deficiency on the part of the hospital. Well, I mean, you can only have so many people on call. You can only have so much stuff. We can't have neurosurgeons sitting upstairs waiting to go into surgery. Nobody, nobody has that. that kind of money. Nobody expects that, Greg. But I think that if on a daily basis you are out of control in terms of your capacity to see patients, that's a different story. But that may be the only situation. If you and I went right now, down to L.A. County, do you think it might be out of control? <laughs> I mean, you understand the situation, that sometimes it's the best you can do. Now, I think that's a very good point, Greg. That happens to the best of departments. All right, so if I'm understanding this discussion correctly, what I've heard is it's okay to put in the chart uh, specific things about how the overwhelmed department is affecting the patient at that moment in time. So I can write specific things about what I've done, why there is a delay. But to put in the chart things like, it's just the damn administrators again, they never listen, would be completely inappropriate. I don't think anybody's going to argue with that. I think that's a fair statement. Yep. Yes. All right, gentlemen, I think that ends it. That's great. Tell us about a wine and we'll end the philosopher. All right. Wine of the month. It's time. It's time. And we're going to stick with Californians. We did the Australians last month. Back to California, one called Tin Roof, 2005 Merlot. Tin Roof is a relatively new vintner in California. And they put out a Merlot that at $13 a bottle ranks with some of those that are at $49 a bottle. In fact, in the tastings done by the wine enthusiast, they hit right up into that mid to high range group and clearly were one fourth the cost of a lot of those competitors. Tin Roof, 2005 Merlot, and California, 13 bucks a bottle. Speak to your local wine dealer about getting it. Thank you. Excellent. All right, ladies. Another great risk management monthly tape. I think it's time to sign off. Goodbye, Rick. Goodbye, Greg. See you next month. Bye, guys. Bye for now. Bye for now. Well, it looks like we have one minute left here at the end of this CD. Let me tell you something very quickly that you might find useful. This year at Essentials of Emergency Medicine, which is November 13th, 14th, 15th and 16th at Planet Hollywood in Las Vegas, we're going to have a great general emergency medicine conference. But Rick and Greg Henry will be there. And Greg will be giving a risk management talk on the last day, on the 16th. And we'll also be doing a live taping of Risk Management Monthly in November at that conference. If you want to come along, you can go to USC Essentials. 
www.mercymedicine.com for more information. As I say, a wonderful General Emergency Medicine Conference over 700 registrants last year, and we'll be doing a live recording with Rick and with Greg of Risk Management Monthly. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we will talk to you soon. Bye for now.